Welcome to We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. I'm Lauren Lee, and I'm all about building communities, celebrating unique journeys, and sharing stories about the paths people have taken to enter the tech industry. Join me as we explore the skills my guests have learned in their prior jobs, schooling, or life experiences, and how they apply them to their current roles in tech. All right, let's do this and dive in. My guest today is a multi-talented violinist, software engineer, and composer based in Cambridge, UK. Currently, she is the concertmaster of the Cambridge Philharmonic Orchestra. She recently started Desk Notes, a YouTube channel with short videos full of tips for orchestral string playing, and soon will be recording a CD of her own solo violin compositions. In 2017, she retrained at Makers Academy as a computer programmer, and now combines violin performance with her career as a software engineer at Cambridge Cognition, where she writes code that is used for worldwide clinical trials. Her name is Paula Muldoon, and I'm so excited to be chatting with her today. Welcome, Paula. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, let's start at the beginning, shall we? Yeah. Okay, let's do it. So can you tell me more about the experiences that you had before entering the tech industry? Yeah, absolutely. So I'm originally American. I now live in the UK, actually, but I grew up in Massachusetts and went to university at the University of Michigan. And I was just a musician. I did violin performance for my undergrad. And then I moved to London and did violin performance for my master's degree. And then as soon as I finished my master's degree, I got a job in an orchestra. So pretty traditional, straightforward violin path. And Mm -hmm. I played in the orchestra. It was great orchestra up in Liverpool for about a year. And it just wasn't the right thing for me. I wasn't using my brain in the right way. So I thought, okay, well, I'm still young, I should just go and try things. So I quit my job, moved to London and freelanced for a few years, which was a very exciting time. Played all over the world, loads of different concert halls and lots of touring and stuff. But it was also really exhausting. Right. A lot of burnout from just being at the airport at 6am and going to play a concert that night. And after a few years of doing that, I was starting to think, is this really sustainable for the rest of my life? Mm-hmm. And so I was actually out in China a few years ago, and they offered me the job of being what we'd call leader in the UK or concertmaster in America of the orchestra there. And I thought, either I take this job and I really, really keep playing the violin or I just do something very different. And so I decided to do something different. And that's when I got into code. Wow, leap of faith to totally transition. Because it sounds like your childhood also was pretty heavily invested in violin. Absolutely, violin. And for a while I was doing a dual degree with medieval and early modern studies. So possibly even nerdier than the violin. (laughs) That's awesome. That's so interesting. And so, wow, I mean, that jump to something incredibly modern sounds fascinating. And out of all the things that you could have chosen, why code? And then how did you decide to tackle learning it? So I chose code really for very practical reasons. So as I mentioned, I live in the UK and I wanted a career where I could move back to the US if I ever wanted to. So that immediately ruled out okay. things like doctors and lawyers, because there's a lot of retraining if you're going to practice in a different country. For similar reasons, sure. I wanted something that I could train in quickly. And three months in a boot camp, you can then get a full-time job. And again, doctors, lawyers, sort of more traditional careers, you're looking at years of training. <laughs> and I was just not interested in doing that. Sure. And so then you go to Makers Academy, is that right? Yeah. And I think this is, this is a story I hear a lot about career changers, is they knew someone in their life who had done this. And so for me, I was working part-time at this music tech startup doing business development, but the developers were sitting right across from me. And Mm -hmm. there was a a woman named Sophie who had done Makers Academy. And so I was able to talk to her about it and talk to her experience of both of Makers Academy specifically and also more generally about transitioning into tech. 
Well, it's cool that it was a music startup and that kind of blended it for you immediately. And so then you were able to, in the business development side of things, it sounds like maybe it wasn't fulfilling for you. And so you were curious to find something else that would challenge you in the different ways. Yeah, I was. And, you know, funnily for me, I, I decided to apply to Makers and become a developer before realizing that I loved writing code. And oh. it was just such a practical decision thinking I need a life change. It was a bit desperate, to be honest. It turns out really well. And I absolutely love writing code. But it was really good, as you say, that I had that music sure. yeah. tech combination because it made it less scary for me. And then so after doing Makers, did you stay on there? Or do you want to bring us to today and tell us about what you do at Cambridge Cognition as a software developer? Yeah, so at Makers, one of the reasons I chose Makers is they have a really great hiring partnership with a lot of companies, because it's really important as a junior developer to make sure you're in the right sort of environment for your first job. Totally. So my first job after Makers was with a company called Kurt Geiger, which I'm not sure Americans would necessarily know about it. It's essentially a luxury shoe company. So I was selling shoes online, which is very different from playing the violin. But it was a really good spot to learn a lot about what tech is like in the real world. Yeah, it's good to have that exposure kind of early in that career. Exactly. Yeah, because the biggest thing, I think, the difference between like studying code on your own or in a boot camp and in a job is just the sheer scale of things. Oh, for sure. Millions of lines of code to wrap your head around. So the sooner you get to see that, the better. Definitely. So then I left left there about a year and a half ago and went to a company called Cambridge Cognition, which is is based in Cambridge in the UK where I live. The work there is providing sort of game-like tests that are used in clinical trials. So it's interesting because it's a very highly regulated industry because obviously if something's being used to determine whether a medicine is safe for people, you really really have to make sure that it's very high quality. So I've been there for about a year and a half and I'm actually next month going to be starting a new job with a German-based company called Writer and I'll be writing automation software for lawyers and that's going to be a fully remote job again. Oh, very cool. So it'd be nice to go back to the remote lifestyle. Yeah. Which I had in my first job. You like the remote world? I do. Yeah. I like the flexibility because I still play the violin quite a lot. So it's nice to be able to practice in the middle of the day. Sure. Let the work life blend around. Yeah. And take a balance for your brain, I'm sure. It's an interesting switch between Absolutely. staring at code and in a puzzle deeply rooted in something and not be able to figure out the bug and then to switch in with your violin. There's probably something happening with your brain there that is really healthy and a good processing happening. Yeah, absolutely. Very cool. As a kid, were you interested in tech or what kept you from entering tech before you did? Was it just solely being focused on violin and that musical pursuit or are there other reasons? Yeah, well, I was homeschooled as a kid and I didn't really have a very good math and science. I had basically no math and science education. So I always grew up thinking, I can't do math. I can't do science. My brain just doesn't work like that. Mm -hmm. Actually, thinking back, I did build a website when I was about 10 years old, which was entirely dedicated to Star Trek The Next Generation. (laughs) I love it. As much as I could, I cloned like the look of the computer screen. So that was my first coding project. Wow, awesome. But essentially, I grew up just thinking that is a world that I I can't know anything about. That's not mine. That's not for me. Yeah, exactly. And I was thinking, oh, you have to know integral calculus in order to write code, which is so not true. Oh my gosh, yes. Like, let us repeat, listeners, you do not need to know that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. It's logic, but not math, not heavy math. Exactly. I mean, it can be, but for sure, right? Anything can be in theory. Your story of having a friend, Sophie, who had done the program, it sounds like that's a really, really common thing. I'm hearing more and more from folks who, Mm. you know, it just has that one person that's like, this is accessible and it is challenging and interesting and creative in ways that popular culture or society 
has not led us to believe. And we give ourselves these labels of I'm not good at math, I'm not good at STEM, whatever. And it's about breaking down that and realizing, oh, I can find success. And I think boot camps do a great job of helping you Mm. find that success really quickly and have that immediate gratification early on in the program and say, okay, let's turn this on its head a bit and begin identifying as someone who could be incredible at code. Yeah, absolutely. I love it. So tell me then, how has your past as a violinist helped you today in your role as a software developer? <laughs> That's a really good question. Something I think about a lot because one of, so one of the real struggles about being a career changer yeah. is being bad at something when you're an adult. And I was 30 when I went to Makers and I'd been playing the violin for 22 years. Right. So it was it was really second nature to me. It was just part of my body and part of my like existence. And suddenly looking at code and thinking, I don't know anything. However, I've discovered that that is a really useful thing because you look at problems with fresh eyes. Mm -hmm. And because a lot of times in code, things just happen for a reason, you know, maybe this was the constraint at the time and they've happened and they've propagated over time. And it does take someone coming in with a completely different viewpoint to say, hang on a minute, why are we doing this? And you might learn something or someone else might say, actually, there's no there's no real need to do this. Having that, that beginner mindset is unbelievably frustrating, but also really, really a valuable skill. And other things that, and I see this a lot with career changers, again, in tech, is just having life skills. You know, at the age of 30, you've been around the block a bit. You sort of understand what it's like to be a professional and to be in a working environment. Definitely. So you bring those skills and those skills from different types of working environments as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think a big one for musicians is communication because we're sort of trained to communicate. I mean, that is what you do when you're performing is you're conveying an idea of a piece of music to an audience. Communication is second nature to us in a way that maybe it isn't for most typical computer science grads. Sure. Because they haven't spent all this time working closely with other people. So having that ability to work in a team, I think, is also a really good skill. Yeah, team mentality of like we versus me, an individual, and so how to collaborate. Yeah. And I I think the first point you brought up, and you're an expert in your violent field, right? And so it can be terrifying to suddenly not know anything. But I think it's incredibly impressive when people can embrace that and say, I'm going to learn to be comfortable in this uncomfortable setting and embrace what learning opportunities that will bring me. So I applaud you for that. That's really neat. And I hope that listeners will connect to that too. And, you know, we all feel pretty stupid sometimes when we're facing new problems (laughs) and But eventually it can feel incredibly gratifying too to say like, oh, I championed that and I mastered it. So it's really neat. Absolutely. My partner is is sort of the opposite for me. He's a very experienced developer, has a master's in computer science. And, you know, occasionally he'll, he'll come into the room and just say, I've just spent two hours doing this thing and I was I was pressing refresh on the wrong page and, <laughs> and stuff like that. And it sort of makes you realize, yeah, we all have moments where, where things just don't work yes. and that's okay. Yeah, definitely. And in the process of learning when to ask for help and all of that too, to like how to debug something yeah. into that's a skill in itself. And I think you, know, you have to learn how to know when to kind of step away and play the violin for a moment or to dig into yeah. a problem really gets easier with time, but also then just new problems come up. So yeah, yeah, learning Absolutely. to feel comfortable in that setting for sure. Do you feel like those, yeah. those skills that you brought to the table because like you said, being 30 and having life experiences or, you know, your training, do those differentiate you from your coworkers who have taken that traditional route to tech? I think so. And it's interesting you, you talked about when to ask for help because that's something that I see myself compared to, to other software developers generally. I usually ask for help a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. And it, even when I first started working, I had a system, which was I worked in Pomodoros, which is 25 minutes of work, five minutes of break. Mm-hmm. So you, in the break, you get up and walk around. And if I was stuck on a problem for more than two Pomodoros, I asked for help. Mm-hmm. And that really helped me figure out when I needed to ask for help, because sometimes it's just, oh, there's one person who knows this obscure fact, and they're the only person that knows it, and no amount of Googling would help. Yeah. 
figuring out which type of problem it is, whether it's that type or the type that you can solve on your own. It helps to say, right, I've just got a system. I don't need to agonize about whether I'm going to look stupid or something for asking for help. Yeah. I think being able to ask for help or second opinion is really, really valuable. I also think it differentiates folks as leaders too, to demonstrate vulnerability of like, I'm okay to share that I don't know this yet, but I'm going to. And I'm going to yeah. figure it out and kind of solidifies, I feel, uh, from the employer's perspective of like, yeah, we brought you on for a reason. You're going to help us problematize things. Yeah. And that unique perspective is really such an asset. And so it's a nice reminder, I think, in the day to day of things. And I think also there is when you're asking for help on a, on a problem or you're trying to solve a problem, there often isn't a one correct answer that you need to achieve. Oh, yeah. it's, there's a problem and there's multiple ways of approaching it. Yeah. And maybe traditionally the company and the team has solved it in this way uh-huh. and you need to know the traditional way that they have solved it because that's the context and so on but also maybe there's a different way of solving it and by asking the question you might be feeding something that is actually really useful absolutely you bring up something interesting my background is actually in education and i have my master's in elementary education and i was reading something recently about math in particular about how teachers are flipping it on its head the way it used to be was you know there was one right answer black or white yes no correct Mm. and now instead to approach it as you know there are so many different ways to solve a problem let's applaud the different unique routes that people are getting to and I think that that's going to be really impactful for students in the way that they even regard themselves as learners and their relationship with math that it hopefully could help and change the way that they see themselves and then approach problems in the future and then code tricky things and solutions may be nuanced in that way. So I I think that's really something cool to be thinking about. Absolutely. That's really good to hear. One of the other really good skills that I think career changers in particular may be able to bring is the ability to look at a question and say, should we be actually be answering this question? Mm. A lot of times people throw tech at a problem or throw a specific solution at a problem and don't stop and think, should I be doing this? Is this the best way to do about this? Am I solving the right problem? Am I solving a real problem? And again, having that different perspective really helps with that. I love that. Yeah, I'm glad you said that for sure. So can you share any life lessons that you've learned from your transition to tech? I think one of the biggest ones has been the growth mindset, actually. Mm. So Makers Academy is really good in not just teaching us how to code, but coaching us through the emotional turmoil of being a beginner as an adult. Yeah. And one of the ways that we really got through that was this idea of the growth mindset mm-hmm. as opposed to the fixed mindset. Yeah. So the fixed mindset basically says, I have X amount of talent. You know, I'm good at math. Therefore, I can do these things. And the growth mindset says, I don't know this thing of math today, but I'm going to figure it out. And tomorrow I will know something more. Mm-hmm. Being able to see that and see like every day okay, there's a new thing that I've learned. And I've kept at points, I've kept a journal saying, these are all the things that I've learned. So you can look back. And when you're feeling like you don't know anything, you can look back at that and say, oh, yeah, actually, I have learned a lot of things. Definitely. Yeah, it's being able to continually push forward yeah. and look back and see the progress you've made. Oh, I love that. Some great advice that I was given early in my bootcamp career was keep a record of all the things that you're confused about or bugs that you have in your code or things that you just like you mm. hear people say and just cannot make sense of and log that each day or week, whatever, and return back to it. And that'll help you demonstrate, oh, my gosh, like checkbox, like I know that what that is now or I know how to solve that problem now because like you said, it's hard to see those day in, day out successes. And it because there's always a new challenge, it's very easy to feel stuck in that I don't know anything status in your brain. And so it, if you are like problematizing and just writing the things that you really don't know, it may feel kind of tough at the moment. But then the reflection piece is very validating. Absolutely. I gave a talk a year or so ago on what I'd learned in my first year as a developer. Nice. And it really, it was really nice to be able to do that and, and sit back 
time to say, well, yeah, this is all the stuff that I now can do. So because funny. it's a funny thing. Well, funny, it's very annoying. that You may spend like a day fixing this bug and working on this problem. <laughs> totally. And it's a day of frustration. And then you get the result and the elation and the joy and the feeling of I'm on top of the world because I've solved this thing lasts for about eight seconds. Right. And then Because <laughs> then you have another thing you have to tackle. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's so wild. <laughs> it's a really annoying mismatch. We must learn to pause and celebrate a bit longer, I think, <laughs> just for yeah. our own sanity yeah. and avoiding burnout in some way, but for sure. So let's see, Paula, can you tell me about a time that you felt like an outsider and maybe how you've dealt with those feelings? Yeah, well, I think for me, I mean, it's quite obvious, but I've often been the only woman in a room of developers. And sometimes if it's been a particularly boring meeting, I'll count the ratio. Yeah. And that's just an annoying fact of the industry, sadly. Mm-hmm. And actually my my job that I'm going to is the first time in my life I was interviewed by a female developer. It awesome. was so lovely. Yeah. It's really nice. But yeah, I'm kind of continually an outsider because I wear bright colors and makeup and, you know, I'm a female, I'm an American living in the UK, I stick out. But luckily I'm also a performer by training, so I kind of enjoy it. <laughs> Right. So you've learned to embrace it in a way. <laughs> I Absolutely. And I have to say, I've found really supportive groups of people. And I think oh. that's the main thing. And I've only had really lovely work colleagues. Oh, and that's, that's made such a difference. Because I know people who have been in bad work environments and that really sour things. Yeah. Well, I think that's good advice. It's like find your tribe, right? It's yeah. find people that are going to be supportive of you. And whether it's your boot camp folks, that your, your cohort that you were with, or people in your new job, but finding people that you can share when you are having a tough moment so that you're not on an island or a silo alone. Actually, speaking of, do you have any other advice that you'd want to share with those who are interested or curious about transitioning into tech? Yeah, do it. (laughs) (laughs) Take the leap, right? Yeah, go for it. The worst that happens is you have a couple of years of a well-paid job and you decide to do something different. For sure. And then you just have that skill in your back pocket. And I was talking to a friend of mine recently who is another violinist who is thinking about transitioning. And she was saying, well, what if I don't like code? And I said, well, okay. So you might not like the act of writing the code itself. I think she will. But, you know, say you don't. Then there's a lot of other jobs in the coding industry that you can do as well. So maybe Mm -hmm. you're going to be a product manager or scrum master or something like that. So once you're sort of in that industry, there's a lot you can do. Yeah. And also one of the really cool things about being a developer is you can work in any field because every field needs developers. Exactly. For me, in three years, I worked in e-commerce, clinical science, and now I'm working with lawyers. So there's just a fascinating mix of stuff you can do with your life. Oh, it's such a good way to look at it. And I think it opens the door for such creative opportunities. Coming from an educator past, I had a lot of folks in my corner being like, well, don't you want to work for the social good? Or don't you need to be mission first company? Isn't that a priority for you? And my first company was Amazon. And (laughs) 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 friends like, this is an interesting path for you, ma'am. But I've eventually found myself into a role where I get to continue being a teacher and I'm a developer educator now. And so I get to help inform developers on how to use products. And it's just so fun. I found my way to that thing. And so like you said, it's exactly the industry that you can pursue any interest that you have. It's just this cool now knowledge you have in your back pocket already and able to share. Absolutely. And the other thing is, it's quite common in the developer industry to be in a job for one or two years and then move on. 
So oh, for sure. your first job is, you know, with Amazon or in e-commerce. That doesn't mean you're going to spend the next 40 years there. Exactly. You'll spend a year, year and a half and move on. Yeah. And nor does it define you, I think, either. It's just yeah. this cool thing that we have a skill enabled to do now and it's not our full identity. And I think that that is a part of growing up too. You have all these other side hustles and hobbies that you bring to the table yeah. with violin and music. And it's so neat that that makes you this like full dynamic human that you're bringing to your work every day. And that probably really impacts the workplace, I imagine. I hope so. I hope so too. It is interesting <laughs> how your identity changes. I don't know if you found this. Yeah. Starting to play the violin from the age of eight, that's pretty strongly wrapped in your identity. Um, and yeah. then suddenly becoming something else is a really, it's an interesting shift to go through to see how you perceive yourself in the world. For sure. As a teacher, that was the first thing I would say in a conversation. It'd be like, hi, my name's Lauren, XYZ, I'm a teacher. It was just so fully wrapped up in who I was. And to step yeah. away from that for the first couple of years, it was, I didn't know how to make sense of it. And I was like, what, what, yeah. what, do I, what do I say now? <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, 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 yeah, it's interesting to shift the way that we approach work almost. And I think that that's pretty cool and healthy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's like an improv comedy where it's a yes and thing. It's not, yes. I'm no, I'm no longer this thing. I was this solely and now I am these other things too, but I'm still all of these things that I used to be. Oh, I love it so much. So Paula, oh, make your shout out. What would you like our listeners to go check out? Well, if you want to check out my YouTube channel, Desk Notes, that would be fantastic. I've released a bunch of videos talking about what it's like to play in an orchestra. And some of them are maybe more relevant for if you do play in the orchestra, but I think also I know some people people who've watched them who've never played in an orchestra and are just curious to see what happens. Yeah. So they're about 90 seconds long each, so they won't take you very long. And awesome. some of them feature my very cute dog. So that's good. <laughs> Great. I will be sure to include that in the show notes. And then where awesome. can people find you online? Yeah. So on Twitter and Facebook, I'm at Fiddler's Code. And you can also check out my website, which is polamuldoon.com. And I've got an email mailing list there. I'm going to be releasing a CD of solo violin music later this year or early next year. So if you want to get on the mailing list for that, you can do that on my website. Oh, that's so great. I will include all of that information in the show notes. Thank you so much, Paula. And thank you. Thank you for having this conversation with me today. I learned so much. First of all, how to pronounce philharmonic, but also <laughs> just, I mean, so much more too. And, and hearing your story is so encouraging. And I know that listeners will benefit from hearing the advice that you have, but also the journey that got you to here today. So thank you very much for sharing. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. Okay. Talk to you soon. Thanks. And that's a wrap on another episode of We Belong Here, Lessons from Unconventional Paths to Tech. Be sure to rate and subscribe anywhere you can find podcasts and check us out next week for another story and lessons learned from an unconventional path to tech.